Good morning. I'm preaching to you again from the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 17, we've been thinking about the coming of the kingdom of God. And we began that study back in verse 20 when the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. Remember how he answered when he said to them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. The Pharisees were, um, as we've seen, that they, they were discontent and they were dissatisfied with um, how Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God rather than leading a parade, a, a Jewish nationalistic parade, parade of visually impressive things and materially rich things and politically rich things, uh, that kind of parade which would showcase earthly treasures and earthly weapons, instead of doing all that, Jesus was doing things like calling sinners to repentance and doing things like offering the promise of forgiveness. And he was doing that even to Gentiles, the outsiders who came to him. The Pharisees were discontent with this. They were dissatisfied with Jesus treating them as equals when he would preach about the poor and the blind and the captive and the oppressed. They wanted a king who would exalt them now. They wanted a king who would exalt them in the eyes of the world. They wanted a king who would give them these things now. And so he wasn't giving them those. And so they resorted to this question born out of ridicule and mockery. They're rejecting his humble spiritual essence. So think about it. To preach a message as Jesus was doing... Like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This doesn't sound like a very impressive or powerful kingdom, does it? <laughs> Sounds like a kingdom of weaklings. Who wants that? So they're asking Jesus, when is, there, when is it really going to come? Who wants a king who sounds like he's going to have a kingdom of doormats? preaching about kingdom members who hunger and thirst uh, not, for, not for more gold and who hunger and thirst not for revenge on their enemies. They're not hungering and thirsting for more real estate, but they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This sounds like a kingdom ripe for mockery and ridicule and disdain. Who wants a king, after all, who is uh, perceived as talking like his kingdom is going to be comprised of a bunch of narrow-minded, judgmental extremists. Think about why they're discontent and dissatisfied listening to Jesus. After all, he was preaching a message about kingdom members who don't puff themselves up and beat their swords and shields to intimidate their enemies. But instead, he preached of kingdom members who beat themselves with Sincere weeping over their sins. This sounds like a kingdom that's ripe for ridicule. For someone who's claiming to be a king to preach a message that says that the evidence that his kingdom members have been made the object of his mercy is that the world will hate them. 
and ridicule them and cast their names out as evil. Sounds like a king who's uh, maybe evil himself. What kind of gift is that? Who wants a king who gives uh, gifts and treasures like that to his people? And so there was much dissatisfaction and discontent with the preaching of Jesus. A message that says that this king, or that this king, that the kingdom rewards are unseen heavenly treasures. Why? Well, that sort of sounds like a scam, doesn't it? Oh, lots of treasures, you just can't uh, see them yet. Preaching a message about a kingdom of suffering now and a kingdom of delayed glory, this is then, it was then, and it is still today, um, very counterintuitive, and it's very disagreeable to your natural lusts and the cravings of a corrupted heart. So the Pharisees and others wanted a kingdom where the members could be always rich now. They wanted a kingdom that could be visually, observably, materially, politically, culturally, always rich now. They wanted a kingdom that would have abundance always now and laughing always now, where the world would include them, where the world would praise them, where the world would extol them and celebrate them and write their names on the monuments of the great. That's the kind of kingdom that they wanted. And so this is why, these are exactly the reasons why people then and people even today are still tapping their watches. When they listen to the message of the gospel, they're tapping their watches with mockery and with sarcasm and with skepticism when they hear of a so-called king who's, who has such great power, but you just can't see it yet. We know that Jesus, when he was preaching, he was revealing the spiritual nature of the kingdom. We recognize that. He was bringing this kingdom into the hearts of those who were rallying to him as their king. Now, now the kingdom comes without observation of the ordinary and common visual and observable territorial material political things that distinguish the great empires of this world. The kingdom of God comes in the unobservable regeneration and renovation of a human soul. Which kind of king would you prefer? Which kind of kingdom is more valuable to you? This is a king who, with his father, gives the Holy Spirit for a gifting of of a light that you can't see. Who, with his father, gives the Holy Spirit for the gifting of a life that does not originate or is sustained in the biology of your body. The kingdom of God comes in justification. The invisible, sovereign act of God, where in His free grace He pardons our sins. And in His free grace He accepts us as righteous in His sight, but not because of any work that we've done, but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by us by faith alone. This is the coming of the kingdom now. The coming of the kingdom does not come with observation. It comes in adoption, the invisible sovereign act of God, where, again, in his free grace, he receives us into the number of his people, and he grants to us all the privileges of the sons of God. This is unobservable. 
The kingdom of God comes in sanctification, the invisible sovereign work of God where he renews us more and more after his own holy image. Of course, it does bear some fruit that is observable, but it is an inward, unobservable work of the Spirit of God upon our souls. Pharisees were dissatisfied and discontent with a visually unimpressive kingdom, with a materially unimpressive kingdom. And so then they, they were unthankful for what Jesus was saying. They were unappreciative of the work that Jesus was doing. But I have to ask, what about you? Are you, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with how the kingdom comes now? Are you thankful or unthankful for the unobservable coming of the kingdom of God? Well, it depends on what you want most whether you're satisfied with that or not. Depends on what you're convinced is your greatest need. Depends on what you think you really need for everlasting wellness and happiness and safety. If you have a broken and contrite heart over your sins, If you're the one who holds out the empty hands of faith opened to receive the treasures of mercy and open to receive the treasures of forgiveness earned not by you but by the Lamb of God who took the punishment, then, then you're the one who's satisfied. You're the one who is uh, oh so content with how the kingdom comes now. If you appreciate those unobservable treasures... And you say yes and amen when Jesus says the kingdom does not come with observation. It depends on really what you, what, you, what you want, what you really desire, if you're content with the coming of the kingdom now or if you're still tapping your watch with skepticism. If the renovation of a human soul is what you consider to be the most valuable thing for you, then you're appreciative and thankful for the gospel message. But... The full answer to the question about the coming of the kingdom is this. The kingdom of God does not come with observation for now, as Jesus then turned to his disciples. Because there is a day on the sovereign schedule. It's called the day of the Son of Man, who is the heaven-sent king. There will be that day, his day, when he will come again and he will be revealed And he will be fully observable in his glory as the glorified man wrapped in divine glory. The glorified man wrapped in the fiery manifestations of divine power. His righteousness on that day will be declared to all. His glory will be seen by all. It will be a day that is observable kingdom of God does not come with observation for now. But Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Dear friends, it will. It will one day in my day. We've had some storms recently, and you may have again experienced that feeling of being intimidated, reminded of how small you are when the thunder shakes your house and when the lightning flashes across the sky. Electrons and water vapor and wind currents can quickly remind you of how small and vulnerable you are. 
but the day of the Son of Man, in that day the Lamb will be the storm. And how small people might feel in that day. In that day, the Lamb will be the one who shakes the foundations of the mountains. In that day, the Lamb of God will be the one, He will be the light who will illuminate every place and every face. And in that moment, there will be no comfort taken under any barrier or under any idea that you, took, that you took comfort in before if it's not in the comfort of the gospel. The lamb himself will be the lightning. The lamb of God will be the fiery amber of light exploding from the clouds, and all of creation will be like a fig tree that is stripped of its late fruit when a storm comes upon it. In the day of the Son of Man, the sky will recede. And every mountain and island will be displaced. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the commanders and the mighty men and every slave and free man will hide themselves in the caves. And they'll hide themselves among the rocks, and they'll hide themselves among the mountains, and they will beg to the mountains and the rocks, saying, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That's what they'll say. But Psalm 97 says, A fire goes before him. And burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. So what protection is a melted mountain going to be? Those poor souls crying out for help from them. So how you respond to this message of the observable coming of the kingdom of God, it depends on what you really want. How you respond to this message of the observable coming of the kingdom of God, well, it depends on what you most desire. Whether it's the continual and more indulgence of your sin, or if it's the full and final and everlasting rescue from your sins and the consequences thereof. His light is going to illuminate your face on that day. And the countenance upon your face will depend on how you in this life loved his righteousness. And it will depend on how you in this life loved his mercy. It'll depend. The look on your face, what, what, it would be, what will be illuminated upon your face in that day will depend on what your heart was devoted to in this life as the most valuable treasure. Because in that day, you'll be seeing it or you won't be seeing it when you see him. You'll be happy or you'll be grieved, depending on what you wanted most.
If you did not seek his mercy in this life, you will not find it in his face in that day. This is the day of the Son of Man. Your, your response in that day will depend on your view and appreciation now of his suffering and rejection ultimately upon the cross. What is your view now of that? What is your appreciation today of his death upon the cross? Because his death on the cross tells you about something, tells you something about you, tells you something about your sins. It tells you something about the need for atonement. It tells you the truth that Wrath is poured out upon sin. It must be because God is just. It tells you that every sin must face wrath and that if Christ has not taken that wrath in your place, then you must take it for yourself. Your view of the suffering of Christ upon the cross today, the look on your face in the day of the Son of Man, it will reveal whether you loved appreciated and was thankful for the death of Christ or whether you weren't thankful. Those who will look to Christ with joy and gladness, it will be those who turned their broken and contrite hearts to Christ as their sin bearer. Have you done that? Have you come before the Lord and simply confessed, saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, I'm a sinner? For you, if you've done that, the light of the Lamb of God in his day will illuminate on your face relief and will illuminate on your face joy, will illuminate on your face worship, will illuminate on your face thankfulness. But we need to continue to listen, don't we, to Jesus as he finishes his answer to the question of the coming of the kingdom. He finishes his answer about the coming of the kingdom with a few additional details about the day of his glorious unveiling. Let's take a look at these details, and let's begin at verse 26. Here's the first detail that he mentions, and it has to do with remembering the days of Noah and Lot. The days of uh, his revealing will be something like what happened in the days of Noah and Lot. Let's read it here in verses 26 through 30. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, the day of the revealing of the Son of Man will be a day of terrifying cataclysm for people who are unprepared. Just like for the people who were unprepared in the days of Noah and Lot. See, if we understand what happened back in those days, 
we'll have a better expectation of the coming of the kingdom in his day. Now, Jesus mentions these two Old Testament examples, Noah and Lot, and these two examples should, should provoke us to ask some questions. So let's go ahead and do that. And I think of a good first question to ask when we're thinking about Noah and Lot is to ask, well, what does it mean to be unprepared? What does it mean to be unprepared? Well, look at the days of Noah and Lot to know what it means to be unprepared for the day of the Son of Man. How were the people who died in the days of Noah and Lot unprepared for the cataclysm? Well, while Noah and Lot listened to the warnings of the coming disasters, everybody else was carrying on with life as if as if it would just keep on going as it had been. There they are living their lives thinking that life as they knew it was their best happiness and that life as they knew it was their best safety. That's what it means to be unprepared. In the days of Noah, Jesus says, the people were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Now you might say, well, hold on, hold on a minute. Hold on a second. That, that, there's no necessary sin in that, right? Nothing necessarily sinful with that, but we remember the context of that, don't we? Genesis 6 tells us that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the context of their eating and drinking and having a, having a good time. They were not eating and drinking and getting married with thankfulness in their hearts to the Lord. They were evil. They were proud. They were scoffers. They were idolaters in their eating and drinking and getting married. They had turned the gifts into the gods that their hearts were devoted to. They were walking and living by sight and walking and living by the enjoyment of the possessions they could see rather than taking their opportunity to repent and to walk by faith and to live in light of what they could not see yet. That is what it means to be unprepared for the day of the Son of Man. You look at the days of you look at the days of Noah and Lot and you see the insanity of sin. It's this insanity of sin whereby you live and you think as if you are building the walls of an eternal fortress for your soul with the treasures and pleasures of this short life. As if your own lusts are leading you to an imperishable, safe place. This is the insanity of sin. And this is what it means to be unprepared for the day of the Son of Man. The days of Noah and Lot are examples that wherever your treasure is, that's where we'll find your heart. And wherever your heart is, that reveals if you're prepared. The object of your devotion reveals if you are prepared for the day. Whatever it is that is the foundation 
for, of your hope for a happy and safe future, whatever that is, whatever that foundation is, it reveals if you are prepared for the unveiling of the Son of Man from heaven. The treasure that you're clinging to because you're convinced it's the lasting treasure for ultimate wellness, whatever that is, it reveals if you are prepared for the unveiling of the Son of Man from heaven. The treasure that the people of the days of Noah thought would give them lasting happiness and safety were the, were the possessions and the pleasures that were stored in their houses or could be held by their hands. It was not the treasure or the safety in the message that Noah was preaching. And so they were unprepared. The people in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, there they are. You can see them eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, but not with thankfulness in their hearts to the Lord, but to spend it all in a drunken abandonment of themselves and indulging their lusts. So yeah, sure, they were planting, but they were in their hearts sowing to the flesh. And so what did they reap? They did not reap happiness. They reaped corruption, and then they reaped destruction. So we're getting at the idea of what it means to be unprepared for the day of the Son of Man. But we also need to ask this other question. We need to ask, well, what exactly were they unprepared for? Well, they were unprepared for the sudden accountability. Now, certainly it wasn't unexpected to Noah. It wasn't unexpected to Lot, but it was unexpected to everybody else because of the hardness of their hearts. The days of Noah and Lot saw the destructive and very rapid power of God's judgment upon sin. The days of Noah and Lot, think back upon them, Jesus is saying. Those were the days when men and women presumed upon God's patience. They presumed to their own ruin. And so Jesus says, so it will be like, it'll be just like that when he comes again with unveiled glory and unveiled wrath. It'll be like that all over again. He's going to find many who are resting themselves with happy ease in the thought that this life will just go on as it has. That somehow they have found a way to outrun accountability or to outrun the sight of their creator. To live now unprepared for the day of the revealing of the Son of Man is to live now as if the treasures and pleasures of this life will save you in that day. It's to live with the insanity of thinking that you are preserving your life, that you are somehow preserving your soul by the unrepentant pursuits of whatever your lusts are grasping after. That is what it means to be unprepared. To live unprepared now for the day of the revealing of the Son of Man is to presume upon God's patience with you. Is there a delay, as would seem to you, in being held accountable for your rejection of the offers of mercy that come to you in the gospel? That is not to be taken as God's approval. That is to be taken as God's patience. The 
The days of Noah and Lot remind us that not all hope is imperishable. No matter how strongly it's held. Those days prove to us that some treasures and some fortresses and some safe places and some comforts are indeed perishable and destructible and quite flammable. The people in the days of Noah and Lot, here's the kind of cataclysm they saw. They saw their own ruin. And that by judgment. And so this is what the Son of Man will bring in his day. In the day when he is revealed, there will be many who will see the ruin of everything they put their hope in. As terrifying as it must have been in the days of Noah and Lot, those days foreshadow something even greater. It won't be in that day, it won't be measurable rain that you can gauge. It'll be him. And in that day, it won't be measurable heat from burning sulfur. It's going to be the Son of Man. This is your opportunity right now to think if you are prepared because if you, if you think that life is just a game, it's just about you building and buying and planting so that you can spend it on your lusts, dear friend, you're not prepared. If you have not abandoned in your heart trust in this life and put your hope for true life in the work and the merit and righteousness of Christ, you're not prepared. If you have not fallen before him in your heart with a humble dependence upon his mercy for the forgiveness of of your sins, you're not prepared. Listen, if you're not in Christ, you're not in the ark. If you're not in Christ, you're not in the ark. If you're not listening and heeding the, the, the warnings and the promises and taking your opportunity today to humble yourself and to confess to him your sinfulness, and today to rest yourself upon his promises, then you're still within the gates of Sodom, and dear friend, that is not a safe place to be. Imagine if you could uh, make a one-way trip back in time and you could arrive at Noah's Ark right before the door was shut. What would you do with what you know would happen? Imagine if you could make a one-way trip back in time and you could arrive in Sodom right at the moment that Lot was leaving. What would you do with what you know would happen? Well, here you are now. What are you doing now with what you know will happen? God hasn't changed. And his warnings and his promises are just as true and reliable today as they were in the days of Noah and Lot. So we think about Noah and we think about Lot and by that, we, we learn what it means to be unprepared and, to be, and what it is to be unprepared or what it is that they were unprepared for. Are you interested in 
learning a little bit more about what it means to be prepared. Well, take a look at the second detail that Jesus gives us. He's going to give us a mindset. We've been looking at a mindset of those who, were un, who, who will be unprepared in his day. Let's take a look at a mindset for those who will be prepared to see him in that day. Here it is in verses 31 through 33. He says, In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus speaks a short proverb about being on the roof, and a little proverb about being in the field and not going back. In the day of the glorious revealing of the Son of Man, who will be the one found to be prepared? We can put it very simply. It will be the one who who left all to follow him. That's what it means. The one who left all to follow him. It will not be the one who is found with his or her heart, who who had a heart devoted to the goods in the house. It will be the one who has removed their devotion and removed their trust and remove their reason for peace of mind from perishable treasures and rewards and placed their devotion and placed their hope and placed their reason for peace of mind upon imperishable treasures and rewards. Who will be found prepared for the day of the Son of Man? The one who understands and who has acted upon the truth of true and everlasting profit and gain. See, the guy who's on the roof and he comes back down in the house, he's misunderstanding what, what true profit and true gain is. He's very confused about that. The guy who runs and escapes for his life understands true profit and true gain. When you remember the days of Lot, you need to remember especially one particular person who had an opportunity to flee the forewarned wrath of God, but she perished. And was that because her feet were in the wrong place? No. It's because the devotion of her heart was on a Savior that couldn't save her. Remember Lot's wife. We remember from Genesis 19, it says, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, she didn't look back because train wrecks are fascinating, and she didn't slow her, her progress on the path like those people on the highway who slow down because they want to look at the vehicle accident. The turning of her face revealed the unrepentant longings of her heart. She turned back with sadness over what she was losing. 
She probably turned back also with much anger and bitterness to God because she judged the life back there and she judged the possessions back there in Sodom. She judged those things to be better guardians of her soul. She judged those things to be better guardians of her safety as better guardians of her happiness. The insanity of of the sin of it. She judged all that stuff that she had left behind as better treasures than promised, but as of yet unseen and unrealized provisions. You know, Genesis 19, if we back up a little bit more in the chapter, Genesis 19 also, it describes the moment when they left the city. Listen to this. It says, while he, that is Lot, lingered, the men, that is these angelic beings, they... The men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that that he, that is this, this angelic being speaking to Lot, he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you or stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't go back to the goods in the house. Run for your life. Don't go back to the goods in the house. That's not life. Whatever it is you're trying to go back for, that's not life. Whatever you're trying to go back to, to cling to, that's that's not happiness. That's not safety. Run. Run for your life, Jesus is saying before it's too late. Escape, he is saying, escape for true life, lest you and the life you thought you had are both destroyed. You know what's happening today, right now, even in this very moment? What's happening today in the preaching of this very word and by this little proverb, the Lord is taking you by the hand and he is showing you how to escape from the wrath to come. He's doing this by showing you what it means to stay alive. He's showing you what it means to survive the day of the Son of Man. Back in chapter 9 of this very gospel, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? You're on the roof. Don't go back. There's there's nothing there. Don't go back. Don't turn back. Leave it. Lose it. For the sake of real profit, for the sake of real gain, lose it. Let go of it. Find your hope, find your hope somewhere else, with someone else. What profit is it? What gain is it? Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory 
and in his fathers and in the holy angels. What profit or gain will it be to you if you are found on that day to have never evaluated unobservable heavenly treasures as more valuable than temporary, corruptible, perishable treasures? Remember Lot's wife. In the day of the Son of Man, will you be found to have evaluated poverty of spirit before the Lord as a more valuable treasure than whatever riches you might have gained through prideful self-evaluation? Will you in that day be found to have evaluated the grace of hungering for righteousness to be more valuable than whatever satisfying fulfilling that you might have had by stuffing your soul with the objects of sinful lust? Will you, in the day of the Son of Man, be found to have evaluated the grace of grieving over your sins and your lusts as more valuable than whatever laughs you might have gained by indulging your sins and lusts in this life? Gain and profit. Jesus wants you to think about it. Will you be found to have evaluated as more valuable the forgiveness of your sins and as more valuable the acceptance of you by God? Will you be found to have judged those things as more valuable than whatever acceptance you could have had that lost worldlings offer among themselves? Which do you fear more? To be disowned by the world now or to be disowned by Christ in his day? Which do you fear more? Do you today find the comfort of the gospel is more valuable than the comfort of this passing world? Remember Lot's wife. Let me add to the Old Testament examples that Jesus mentioned. Let me mention the Old Testament example of Moses who is described in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 in this way. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ, that is, the persecution that came upon him by being a follower of Christ, judging, evaluating, esteeming, the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. And we'd say, well, why? And the text says, because he looked to the reward. By faith, it says, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, because he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses took his opportunity to flee the wrath to come. He did not come back down into Pharaoh's house. He didn't come back down into the house of the possessions of this life. He fled. He had a choice and he fled. He escaped for everlasting life. Remember Moses. And how did he flee? 
by releasing the grasping of his devotion, by releasing the grip of his heart from the possessions and the treasures and the pleasures and the rewards of this life so that the grip of his heart and the grasping of his devotion and the foundation of his hope for everlasting happiness and safety would be upon the promised Savior. And who's still around today? Is it Pharaoh or is it the Lord of heaven and earth? Remember Moses, if you want to be prepared for the day of the Son of Man. Moses placed the devotion of his heart upon a reward that he could not see yet. But it was promised. It was promised to him that it would be provided by the one that Moses did not see yet. Think about it. What profit and gain would it have been for Moses to cling to the treasures and the pleasures of Egypt. Where, where are they now? Where are the treasures and pleasures? They're gone or they're collecting dust in some museum. What profit or gain, or gain are those old, all that old Egyptian gold, what is that profit and gain giving today to the people who entrusted themselves to it? Remember the days of Noah. Remember the days of Lot. Remember Lot's wife. Remember the days of Moses. That's the mindset, isn't it, for those who will be prepared for the day of the Son of Man. They fled for their lives. They fled for their lives knowing knowing true profit and true gain. Well, there's a third and final detail that I can give to you from our text. Details, additional details that Jesus is giving. He's still answering the question of the coming of the kingdom of God, and he's speaking here, giving additional details about the observable coming of the kingdom in in his day. It will be a day of terrifying cataclysm for those who are unprepared. It'll be a day, it will be a day of great joy and relief for those who are prepared. Well, there's a third thing that he mentions here, and it's that the day of the Son of Man is going to be a day of final and irreversible sorting. Let's listen very carefully to what he says here in verses 34 through 37. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they, his disciples, they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will be gathered together. This is one of the most... uh, Sobering passages that we'll find in all of Scripture. I hope that you'll listen very carefully so that you'll understand what Jesus is saying. The day of the Son of Man is going to be the day of the instant sorting of everybody for rewarding or for punishing, for accepting or for forsaking. And this sorting is going to be irreversible. Two will be together in bed, two will be at work. And then, in an instant, they will not be together anymore. When the Son of Man is revealed, 
His act of judgment is going to be instantaneous. And it's going to be the instantaneous and irreversible separation of the sheep from the goats. The Son of Man will come with his final winnowing fork and he will dig his judgment into all of humanity and he will sort his accepted and beloved wheat from the chaff and he will gather his beloved wheat into the domains of a new heaven and a new earth but the chaff will be blown away by wrath two in the same bed two working together and in an instant one will be rescued and one will be gone the disciples are provoked by this and you ought to be as well the disciples you notice they ask where where Lord and here's what I think they're asking I think they're, I think they're asking this Lord will will we be able to recognize where this takes place where will we be able to recognize where this judgment and this separation has taken place where Lord will, will we be able to recognize it where where will we see this will we recognize it yes you will see I think is Jesus answer yes you will see and yes you will know without any question where the Son of Man has brought his judgment yes you will see and you will know without any doubt in your mind where the Son of Man has unveiled who belong to Him and who do not, because you will see the results of the judgment. You're going to see the results of the separation. You're going to see the results of this condemnation. And dear friends, the result will be most unpleasant for those who are not saved. This field of judgment, which is the world, that the Son of Man will ride through in his day. This field is the entire world. And in that day, we will know where he judged. In that day, we will know where he sorted. And we will know that he was there in righteousness when we see the end for the condemned, for the slain, for the consumed. When you see the vultures circling in the sky, you know, well, maybe they have their eye on something. But when you see the vultures in the field on the ground circled around the carcass, well then, you know they found something. There they are, they're still circling up the sky. You think, well, maybe there's still hope for whatever. But if they're on the ground, circled around it, you know, there's no hope, you know. Because death has come. You don't have to wonder, you just see, you just look where the vultures are. And you know, you know what's happened. That's what Jesus is saying here. You know that whatever they're feeding upon, there's no hope for any more life. Think about it this way. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be left wondering where or if a king was powerful. You wouldn't, wonder, you wouldn't be left wondering if he was powerful in his ruling. You wouldn't be left wondering if he was powerful in his victory over his enemies if 
he took you to the field of battle where you can hardly see his enemies through the carrion birds that are feeding on what's left of his enemies. There would be no doubt in your mind. There would be no question with there. The day of the Son of Man will be a day of sorting. One will be rescued and one will be forsaken. And the disciples say, where? And he'll say, this is, this is how you'll see it. This is, this is how you'll see the results of it. You won't miss it. You won't miss the location. You won't, you won't, miss, the, you won't miss the proof of it. Because it's like vultures that descend upon a carcass. Dear friends, by this text, I encourage you to behold not so much the vultures, but to behold the power of the king who commands the vultures. The vultures do his bidding. I want to encourage you to behold the power of this king who commands the vultures, who is Lord over death itself. And that's both beautiful news and sad news. Behold the coming of the Son of Man who conquers death for his people and who will feed his enemies to it. In that day, there, in that day will there ever have been such a sight of one thing most beautiful and most horrific for the consumption of his enemies by the second death will be beautiful and it will be devastating. When you think about that field strewn with the consumed bodies of the enemies who hated and resisted that king, what you think about it, when you look upon that, it depends on what you think about the king. For his precious and guarded children, made perfect in body and soul, that will be a day that death will be observably swallowed up in victory. Consider, dear saints, observably swallowed up in victory. For the unprepared, they will be observably consumed by the full and the eternal manifestation of what it means to be dead in body and what it means to be dead in soul. If you are found on that day to have taken your opportunity in this life to escape to Christ and taken your opportunity in this life to have come to love His holiness and righteousness and justice and mercy, then for you... The results of his powerful and swift justice, it will be beautiful. It will be beautiful. It will be the greatest relief that you've ever felt. It will provoke a great hymn in which the king's children will all sing their praise and wonder in light of his glory and honor and power and faithfulness to keep all of his promises.
dear saints, you little ones, you, you precious little ones who belong to the shepherd, who belong to this king. The kingdom is now known with much suffering. And it is known by faith in the assurances of unseen treasures. And it can be hard to persevere. But your king gave his life for you. And he's coming again. And there's nothing and no one who will overcome him and stop him. And I say again to you, dear friend, with with no profession of faith, with however much time remains, it's time that the king is being patient with you. The door of the ark is still open for now.